decision of mine, but it's back together again. So it's kind of a little rocky. This one's literally my fault right now. So I'm a little bit rocky with this one because um, I am being vigilant. Not just about what I say, but about what I do. Because I know at any god forsaken fucking moment he can literally change his dynamic and literally fucking go crazy and have sex regardless multiple times and get chlamydia or get fucking like an STD and it's not gonna be my fault because like I don't have that urge to want to have sex 24-7 with every girl that has a walking vagina just saying just saying but he's a clingy person and I hate clingy people like I have a tendency to be just a little bit of that like a little bit of clingy even though I hate it but like I use clinginess in a good way I always check up not always but sometimes I check up on my my old friends and I say hey how you doing that's it and then like them alone for like a few months and then I'll go back to them but it's not like a constant everything like hey how's it going hey how's it going hey how's it going how are you doing how are you? it's like sometimes like if I want to talk to them and if I want to and I'm like maybe I'm fucking bothering them because I put that in consideration I'm like maybe I'm fucking bothering them by saying hey how are you doing maybe but that's just my opinion but yeah so Like, we had a discussion before getting back together that, like, me and him are going to have more open communication and that, like, if you have a problem with either one of us, like, you let us know, like, if he's mad at me, you let me know, or I said, if I have a feeling that he's being clingy or one of us is being clingy, we have to tell them, not right away, but as soon as possible, so that we can get it over with and done with and spoken about. And if this, like, if either one of us has a sexual fucking fantasy, like a fucking fetish, either fucking sexual fetish, that one of us wants to do something disgusting, because I'm not going to go into glorious detail about that one, but you know what I mean, that they do not have to agree with it at all. They're not gonna say hey how do I <laughs> No. They're gonna be like, No, I'm not gonna do that. You're gonna have to respect that and that's that. And also not to invite girls over to your apartment and tell them your fucking address because he did that and I'm not okay with that. It's like I wanna have some girls that are my friend that's understandable, but if you think literally your best friend, I'm gonna fucking strangle you and you're gonna end up dead on the news. I'm gonna fucking be the catalyst of everything. So, no. You don't know how us Mexican women are. We are sadistically insane. We're more insane than Puerto Ricans, than Dominicans, than Honduras, 
than Colombians and other Latinas and Latinos. So we're more crazy than you think. So yeah. Um Vicky doesn't understand that. And so like recently he's like he he's like if you if I did anything wrong you you can you tell me? And I'm like, of course I will tell you. And then, then um, like nine minutes later, after finishing up one episode of my podcast, which is I just did one now, he he just like texts me saying, "If you're mad at me, will you let me know?" Like kind of like signaling to me, like, "Are you mad? Did I do something wrong?" Like, dude, I have been tired the past two three fucking days i told you this yesterday that i'm fucking tired and you're not getting it not my fault but your ass ain't fucking getting it so i told them i'm not up for a phone call conversation or a sexual phone call conversation with him because i am all sorts of tired because every time I try to record something or listen to music and sing, my head is tired and I yawn a lot. And I'm trying my best not to yawn. So I told them I wasn't in the mood that we'll, we'll call tomorrow because I'm not in the mood right now. And he was like, he kind of like puts like, okay, like that's my that's my phrase that I use. I go, okay, like this is weird. Like he puts like the word okay fully. Like O and then the K and then the A and then the Y and the three periods. Like okay. And I'm like, yeah. That's right. So then now we move on to the next two chapters. We have chapter 8, the tiger parents. So, the tiger parenting is a term used to describe a style of strict, demanding parenting popular within the Chinese community. Every parent wants their child to achieve greatness of some sort, whether it be sports, arts, or academia. But a tiger parent is a completely different animal. Tiger parents are are obsessive with their child's success and push their influence on their children to the extreme. A typical tiger parent would expect their child to attend an Ivy League school like their Harvard, like Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. And they also might regulate who their child dates so they marry into a good family. Ultimately, their goal is to make sure that their child gets a lucrative job such as Wall Street lawyer, investment banker, or highly paid surgeon. So, before I continue on, I hate tiger parenting. I know it's a Asian thing, Asian culture thing, and also possibly, I'm not going to assume, but a Southeast Asian thing as well. Not just an Asian thing, tiger parenting. But, yeah. Because, like, I'm not saying I'm just from high school experience, but just in general, most of the students from... GNT middle school were literally Asian populated and 
they look like they wanted to be successful in what they did too and become surgeons and lawyers and investment bankers so and I'm not saying I, I completely agree with this parenting because I am not a parent but I don't condone it like if I ever have children I will never put this on my own child to ever face in their life to be like you better have good grades in your in your school if i find out you have bad grades and you have 65 and lower and lower than that then you're not acceptable in my house no i'm not gonna do that to my own fucking kids that that's unacceptable i can't teach your own child that if you fail a grade in their own class okay it's different if you fail three classes, that means if you fail three classes, you're about to fail. If my child's failing two or one, it's different than the normal. It's different. I'm not gonna put it upon them like, hey, like, I'd be like, hey, sweetie, I see that you're failing some of your classes. Is everything alright? And they'll explain to me, and they'll open up, and I'll be like, okay, if you need any help in any of them, I'll help you, because I was good in history class. Let me tell you, I was extremely good in history class. Um, and then I'll offer my assistance or help if they need it. I'm not going to be a frustrating parent and be like, if you don't have good grades, I'll kick you out. And then, because, you know, if you have good grades, you can either be a good surgeon and a good or a good lawyer. And then they'll yell at me and say, I don't want to be a fucking lawyer. I don't want to be a fucking surgeon. I want to be my own self, have my own career that I like. Because once again, you're going to be the ones wasting money on me in college when I have the profession I chose. And they are not wrong. Like, parents are wasting money on their kids. No offense. Children out there and young adults that are in their are they 20s like 21 20 years old and still in college like i'm not just saying you guys in general i'm just like i'm not saying just you specifically i'm just saying in general that like a generalization but like if you choose a profession that like let's just say for example that like if i didn't take a gap year in college like two gap years correction if i didn't take two gap years in college and i literally um in high school my my counselor goes to me so, Dan, did you choose a, a college you want to go to? Oh, oh, I did. I got accepted to NYU, and I was thinking to do, um, music industry. Oh, really? That's an interesting take. Why is that? Oh, because I have a fascination with music and different genres, and I like it. Hmm, interesting. I hope you succeed very well. If you need any help on your application performing it at NYU, be sure to call me anytime. Like, sure, of course, Mr. Gilbert. And then he wouldn't be, like, kind of, like, maiming me for it, like, hounding me for application, for application to go to college and stuff and pushing me forward. And, and if I chose that profession of music industry and, like, music in general, I would be bored out of my mind. No offense, I love music, I love that, but, like, what happens if I don't like my profession? then what my parents won't have the funding for me to be able to change my career because changing your career in your whole atmosphere like that is going to cost a, a like a lot more than what you bargained for at the beginning of your semester of 
the classes that you're taking it's going to cost a lot more and plus you have to take into consideration how many kids are filling up those classes too mm, if those classes are full or not if you know what I'm saying and you have to take into consideration the money that you're pocketing from your parents and also the class like how many kids are going to be in the classroom how many students are going to be in there you gotta can take that into consideration, not just the fact that you're pocketing your parents' money. Like, I would have been like, Mom, Dad, I don't wanna go to college just because I'm being forced into it from counselors and stuff. I wanna go to college because I want to, not because they're pushing me to it. And plus, I have not chosen a profession yet because some kids, some of my friends, knew what the fuck they wanted to do straight out of freshman year. Like, who the fuck thinks that way? Like, hey, my name is Charlie. Hi, my name's Dan. Nice to meet you. Um, so I I already know what I want to do when I get out of high school. Oh, do you? What do you want to do? What do you What do you want to be? Oh, um, a, me- a mechanical engineer. Oh, really? Interesting. You haven't even started high school yet, and this is your first day, and you really want to start chemical engineering? Yeah. I, I always wanted to start that because it was fascinating and I loved it and I love watching it watch, watching videos on it oh okay are you sure that's what you want to do yeah why do you ask never mind just 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 asking um it'll be like what Polly D from Jersey Shore would say awkward so you see what I mean? But anyway, when Han Pan and Byung Han Pan were stereotypical tiger parents, Han had immigrated from Toronto, Canada as a refugee, and his wife Byung um, followed shortly after, and the two married after their arrival in Canada and got jobs working for an auto parts manufacturer. And by the late 80s, they had two children, Jennifer and Felix. Penn led an extremely thrifty life, saving as much as they possibly could. And by 2004, they had $200,000 in the bank and owned a nice size home in a suburban neighborhood. And their sole extravagance were their cars, a Mercedes, and a Lexus. And their main objective was to save enough to send their kids to the best schools and make sure they were eligible for their possible scholarships. And they wanted to make absolutely sure that Jennifer and Felix lived a more plentiful life than they did. The first, their firstborn, Jennifer Pan, showed potential at an early age, and at the age of four, she was already taking piano lessons, providing to be exceptional in her elementary school year she started figure like figure skating and some evenings Bianca Han would keep her uh, practicing until 10 p.m. and then homework until midnight. At graduation from middle school Jennifer was accepted to be valedictorian of her class but turned but was turned down. She was devastated and her parents even more so. The pressure on Jennifer was immense and more than a girl in her early teens could handle. She told her friends that she would put up her happy mask and but keep down she was suffering and kept cutting her forearms 
with tiny cuts. Jennifer attending high school at Mary's Ward Catholic Secondary School. If being and if going to a Catholic school and cutting your arms out and show that you're suicidal, I don't know what does in Toronto and the school is known for a unique self-directing learning program with an uncommonly high academic standards. Jennifer fitted in and got along with most with almost everyone. Her parents monitored her after school activities closely in which she became an avid swimmer and practiced wushu, a Chinese form of kung fu. In band classes, Jennifer excelled at playing the flute. While she was an an accomplished ice skater, her skills began to slip. A second place in skating competition just wasn't enough for her demanding parents and her confidence began to slip. And at one point, she was an Olymp she was an Olympic, hopefully her figure skating, but those hopes were squashed when she tore a ligament in her knee. In the early years, Jennifer was a straight A student. But by the end of ninth grade, her grades and everything but music had slipped considerably, knowing that a C or even a B wasn't going to sit well with her parents. Jennifer got creative, armed with her old report cards, glue sticks and scissors, and a quick trip to Kinko's, Kinko's sheet. She was able to create the straight A report cards that her par parents expected, but she knew she would have to improve her grades before the final two years of high school if she wanted to get into college. Jennifer's activity at her school were closely monitored by her parents, even though her, even though, like even into her twenties, she was never allowed to go out with, with friends without close supervision. She had never been drunk or gone to a nightclub. She felt as though she was missing out on her childhood and the controlling nature of her parents infuriated her. In her junior year of high school, Jennifer traveled with the school band of to Europe playing the flute. And when the band played in an auditorium that almost smoked, that loud smoking, Jennifer had an asthma attack. A fellow student, a trumpet player named Daniel Wong, took her outside and calmed her down. Daniel was a chubby, funny, and happy-go-lucky kid. He was also a part-time pot dealer. And when he took the time to take care of Jennifer and impressed her, and it wasn't long before they were dating. But, of course, she would have to hide a relationship from her parents. And by the time senior year rolled around, Jennifer's grades still hadn't improved and she had continued foraging her report cards. She had already been accepted to attend at Ryerson University the following year. When she failed her calculus class, Ryerson dropped her. Not only was she not going to go to the university, she wasn't even going to graduate from high school with that failing grade. Nervous that her parents would find out, Jennifer continued foraging documents as far as they knew she was going to Ryerson and she told them that she would take two years of science and then would transfer to the University of Toronto's pharmaceutical program. Just as her father had planned, her father Han was ecstatic and brought her like bought her a new laptop for school. Probably a Mac laptop. Just saying, because those are like a thousand bucks. Jennifer's forged receipts for tuition thousand bucks and more correction. 
Stanford Forbes receives for tuition and a $3,000 scholarship, bought used textbooks and used and left every morning for school. But instead of going to school, she took the bus downtown and hung out at cafes and public libraries all day and she studied scientific subjects and filled her notebooks with notes as if she was attending class. She also spent time with Daniel who was attending York University. She taught piano lessons when she could and worked part-time days at the pizza place where Daniel worked as the kitchen manager. When Jennifer arrived home in the evenings, she made up elaborate stories about her lessons, teachers, and other students. She told a few friends at the lo- uh, like a huge lie she was telling her parents, knowing that if her friends knew it may eventually get around to her parents. Eventually, Jennifer convinced her parents to let her move in with her friend Topaz three nights a week. Topaz lived near campus and she wouldn't have to make the long commute every day. But this was just another lie on top of all the other lies she she said. She actually moved in with Daniel and his parents. His parents constantly asked to meet with her parents, but she made excuse after excuse. After two years of lying to her parents about Ryerson University, it was time for her to transfer the University of Toronto. She found someone on, uh, online to play her a fake, a fake transcript. Graduation from Ryerson was going to be tricky. Jennifer came up with an elaborate excuse that her graduating class was too large and students would only be al- allowed one guest. Rather than choosing, or rather than choose between her mother and father, she gave her guest invitation to a friend so that both her, pa- her friend's parents would attend. Jennifer's parents still didn't even know that she had a boyfriend. And if they had known, they would have forbidden it. For, like, forbidden it. Though she lived with Daniel three nights a week, she wanted to stay more. She told her parents that she was going to volunteer at Toronto's hospital for sick children in their blood testing lab so she would need to stay in the city on the weekends as well. This was the first time her parents ex- suspected her of lying. Her father knew that she was working at the hospital and she would need a uniform and a key card, but she didn't have them. Cotton convinced his wife Bianca to follow her, but Jennifer knew she was being followed. Jennifer wanted, like, went to the hospital and sat in the waiting room all day until she was convinced that her mother was gone. Her parents still knew she was up to something, and the next morning they confronted Topaz, who broke the news to them that Jennifer never lived there and was instead living with Daniel, her boyfriend. And when they confronted her, Jennifer confessed. She told her parents that she wasn't volunteering at the hospital, and she wasn't attending University of Toronto. She was staying with Daniel, but she still didn't tell them that she never attended Ryerson University and hadn't even finished high school. Jennifer's father was beyond livid. His first instinct was to kick her out of the house, but her mother, who was much more lenient than her father, intervened. Her parents forbade Jennifer from leaving this house, like for leaving the house for two weeks. During her time at home, Jennifer's mother spent as much time as she could with Jennifer. Though her father had taken her phone away from her, insisted on no, under no uncertain terms, no contact with. Daniel or any friends, her mother occasionally let her have access to her phone. In February 2009, Jennifer wrote on Facebook saying, quote, Living in my house is like living under house arrest. 
no person knows everything about me and two people put together like put together knows everything about me like I like being a mystery end quote eventually she got access to her phone and though she was forbidden to, from having any contact with Daniel ever again she would sneak phone calls and texts and she would occasionally sneak out of the house every chance she got between teaching piano lessons she would sneak to Daniel's house her parents eventually allowed her to retake her calculus class to get that one last credit she needed to get, get her high school diploma and then she would need to apply for any school that would take her and her father was convinced that it was too late and she would still become a pharmacy lab technician or a nurse. Meanwhile, Daniel was getting sick of all the sneaking around and she was 24 years old but her parents had full control over her love life and eventually Daniel broke up with her and started seeing another girl named Christine. Jennifer grew insanely jealous and concocted an elaborate story to regain his attention. She told Daniel that a man had come to her door claiming to be a police officer and showing his badge and when she opened the door a group of men pushed their way into her room and gang raped her. She then told him that the following day she had received a bullet in the mail. Jennifer told Daniel that it was all warning from his new girlfriend. She claimed Christine was trying to keep them apart. By the spring of 2010, Jennifer had enough. Her father was tearing her life apart and she wanted to end it. She wanted her parents dead. In high school, she had heard stories of a boy named Andrew Montemayor. The rumor was that he robbed people at knife point and had once considered murdering his own father. She contacted Montemayor, but he wouldn't have anything to do with her plan, but told her that his roommate, Ricardo Duncan, might be interested. According to Jennifer, she paid him $1,500 that she had earned from teaching piano, but then never heard from him again. Jennifer and Daniel were texting again, and she shared her thoughts with him, and she explained that her parents were worth about one million, and that they were, and if they were out of the picture, she was set to inherit five hundred thousand dollars, and if her parents were dead, she and Daniel could live their life with no sneaking around, and they could finally be happy. During his weed dealing days, Daniel had met a guy named Lenford Crawford who went by the nickname Homeboy. Daniel thought that if anyone knew how to hook something up like that, it would be Homeboy. Sure enough, he did. Daniel set up a meeting between Jennifer and Crawford and they agreed on a price. Crawford told her the rate, the going rate was $20,000, but for a friend of Daniel's, he could only charge $10,000. Jennifer agreed and said that once she got inheritance, it wouldn't be a problem. Crawford gave Jennifer an iPhone and a SIM card. This phone and SIM would be used strictly for when they spoke and would then, would then he destroyed after the deed was done. Though Daniel knew the plan and knew Jennifer's deepest, darkest secrets, he was still in love with Christine, and she told Jennifer he wanted out of the plan, and she texted him, saying, quote, This is from Jennifer, saying, So you feel for her what I feel for you, and then call it off with homeboy? Daniel said, I thought you, you wanted this for you.
Jennifer said, I do, but I have nowhere to go. Then Jamie said, call it off with homeboy. You said you wanted this with or without me. Jennifer said, I wanted it for me, end quote. The next day, Daniel confirmed it was all still going to happen, saying, quote, Daniel said, I did everything and lined it up all for you. Despite Daniel professing his love for Christine, his flirtatious texts continued in the days after. In early November 2010, Crawford texted Jennifer saying, I need time for completion. Think about it. She replied, today is a no-go. Dinner plans plans out and you won't be home in time. Eventually, Crawford and Jennifer agreed on a date, Monday, November 8th. At 9.30 p.m. on a Monday night, Bianca Pan had returned home from the from a nightline of dancing with her friends and her husband Han had retired early and was already in bed and Jennifer's younger brother Felix was away at college and Jennifer was in her bedroom watching television. Bianca kicked off her shoes, filled a foot bath with the warm water to soak her feet and watch some TV in the living room before going to bed. At 9.35 p.m., Jennifer came downstairs, asked for her mother about her night and kissed her goodnight and discreetly locked the front door. She then went to her bedroom and spoke on her iPhone for three and a half minutes. At 10.2 p.m., Jennifer turned an upstairs bedroom light on and then one minute later turned it off and that was the signal that the door was unlocked. Jennifer sent a text saying, quote, VIP access, end quote. Then, moments later, three men came through the unlocked front door, Lenford, Homeboy, Crawford, David, Mel, I can't even pronounce it correctly, Mylavanganam, Eric Sniper, Cardi. All had guns drawn. One man ran up the stairs to the room where Han was sleeping and put a gun in his face, and he demanded that Han go downstairs where another man was watching over Bianca. Bianca and Han spoke to each other in Cantonese, wondering what they wanted when one of them yelled, saying, quote, Shut up! You talk too much. Like, you talk too much. Where's the fucking money? End quote. Han assumed he only has $60 in his wallet, and Bianca pleaded with Miss Dan saying, quote, please don't hurt my daughter, end quote, and the third man, Cardi, went up the stairs and met with Jennifer outside her bedroom. Jennifer handed him $2,500 in cash and showed him another $1,100 where her mother kept in her nightstand. He then tied her arms behind, like, behind her back with a shoelace and led her downstairs with her parents. The men took Jennifer back upstairs and tied her to the stairway railings. When they took her parents downstairs to the basement, moments later, five shots rang out. Han was shot twice, once in the face and once in the, hip, once in the shoulder. Bianca was shot two times in the back and once in the head. Though Bianca died instantly, Han was bleeding profusely, but still alive. After 18 minutes in the house, the three men left through the front door and left Jennifer alive upstairs. Jennifer's Samsung flip phone was tucked into the waistband of her pants. 
Despite being tied with her hands behind her back, she pulled the phone out and flipped it open and dialed 911, saying, quote, Help me, please, I need help. I don't know where my parents are. Please hurry. What's your name? M my name is Jennifer. S someone just broke in. Someone broke in and heard shots like pop. I, I don't know what's going on. I I'm tied upstairs. Did it sound like gunshots? I don't know what gunshots sound like. I heard a pop. Like, I just heard a pop. Screaming in the background. Like, that's how it sounded like. And, and I don't know, which sounds a little weird how I'm doing it. And he says, I'm okay. My dad just went downstairs. Like, my dad just went outside screaming. Do you think your mom is downstairs too? I don't hear her anymore. Please hurry. I... I don't know what's happening, end quote. The screaming they heard 34 seconds into the 911 call was Han Pan. Covered in blood, Han crawled over to the basement and back to the main floor of the house, and then he went outside screaming as loudly as he could. Nearby neighbors heard, the, heard his screams and called 911 as well, and when police and emergency crews arrived to the home, they found Jennifer upstairs tied to the banister just as she had said, and her flip phone laid on the floor next to her. Han Pan was rushed to the hospital where he was put into a medically induced coma. At 3 a.m., Jennifer was brought into her first interrogation. She told police that three black males had bursted into the house and had taken whatever cash they could find and then shot her parents. Police asked her to explain how she managed to pull her flip phone out of her waistband when tied to the banister. She demonstrated that she reached around her waist, flipped the phone open with her thumb, and turned the volume up all the way. She showed that making the call was possible, but left out a lot of unanswered questions. If it was a robbery, why did they leave so many valuables, like valuable items in the house? Why did they not bring duffel bags or backpacks to carry what they had stolen? And why did they not take the Lexus or the Mercedes when the keys were there in plain view? How did they get in the front door so easily? And if they had planned on killing two people, why leave a third as a witness? The biggest question police had was, why did Han come up the stairs? and run outside for help when he knew his daughter was still in the house. Why did he not try to help her? Their questions would be answered a few days later. Detectives set up 24-hour surveillance on Jennifer and even followed her to her mother's funeral. During the funeral, d detectives noticed that she had a lack of tears or emotions as they lay her mother in the ground. As Han woke up from his induced coma, his neck bone was shattered bones in his face were broken near his eye, and there was a bullet fragment lodged in his face, a bullet that clipped his carotid, his carotid artery. Though he was barely alive, Han remembered everything and had a story to tell that differed greatly from the story Jennifer told. Han told police that Jennifer's story was all lies, like everything else about her life. He said that when the man rushed in, he was taken downstairs at gunpoint into the living room with his wife, and when he looked for his daughter Jennifer, he saw her speaking in a friendly manner with a white man 
and walking around the house with him without any restraint. Police had already interviewed Jennifer twice but on November 22nd brought her in for a third interview and two hours into the, into the interview Detective Bill Gutez began what is referred to as the Reed Technique. The Reed Technique is a controversial interrogation procedure that was developed in the 50s to invoke confession not invoke but evoke confession it had been banned in most european countries because it involved a deception technique such as lying to the suspect about the evidence against them and invading their personal space and the procedure had been accused has been accused of leading to many false confessions but still in use in most of the United States and Canada. Using this technique, Gutez falsely told Jennifer that police use satellites and infrared technology to view activity within buildings and they had software that can tell if a person was lying. Jennifer succumbed to this interrogation and admitted that she hired the men, but not to kill her parents. She told police that she hired them to kill her. She claimed that she had tried to commit suicide many times in the past, but had failed every time. She said she had hired a hit on herself. I didn't want saying, quote, I didn't want to be here anymore, end quote. She told police that her parents wouldn't allow her to see Daniel Wong anymore and she wanted to end her life. She said the men were already outside the house when she decided to call it off, but they demanded the money anyway and burst it into the house. She claimed she couldn't pay them, so she shot her family instead. The cops didn't buy her story. They arrested her and brought Daniel Wong in for questioning, and Daniel confirmed that she was lying once again, and she did, like, like as she did with everything in her life. Despite Jennifer's destroying the SIM card, police were able to recover text messages from her iPhone and Daniel's phone to confirm her arrangements with the hitmen. Jennifer, Daniel, and the three hitmen were charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Jennifer's trial lasted almost 10 months. She took the stand in her own defense for seven days, but it was no use exactly. Because once you take a stand for your own defense in a murder, you are fucking assed out. Like There is nothing to save your scurry ass from questions from the prosecution. When she was handed the guilty verdict, she initially showed no emotion, and once the cameras left the room, she burst into tears and shook uncontrollably. Jennifer Penn was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. Daniel May E. Vangalangam and Crawford all got the same sentence. Jennifer was also given a non-communication order. She was no longer allowed to have any contact with the other defendants or anyone in her family. When Cardi's lawyer came, became ill, his trial was declared a mistrial and postponed. In December 25th, Cardi pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and was sentenced to 18 years in prison with parole eligibility after 9 years. Han Pan still suffers from his injuries and is, and is unable to work and he is released 
the chaos released a statement after the trial which read saying quote i lost my wife i lost my daughter at the same time i don't feel like i have a family anymore some say i should feel lucky to be alive but i feel like i'm dead like i am dead too i hope my daughter jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good honest person someday end quote and that is the story of the tiger the tiger parents like again i'm not blaming the parents if by saying this makes you guys believe in blaming the parents because yeah i'm blaming them essentially if these two parents weren't as domineering and so adamant that they want something good for their daughter they would have accepted her as who she is and as who she was academic or not and good prestigious college or not regardless if you get accepted to any SUNY or CUNY or any college for that matter they would be good in life it doesn't matter if it's prestigious or if it's private or if it's community it doesn't matter they would they should have loved their children unconditionally no matter what but i guess that is the norm in the culture with these asian parents so that's all i gotta say about that one next we're gonna do chapter nine mom i am a monster okay so now we're up to chapter nine if you guys hear me yawn i'm not bored i'm just sleep deprived and i'm tired as fuck do not blame me so i am so sorry you hear me <sighs> a lot and i'm actually really sleepy and i know sh i should be going to sleep but i'm just you know not in the zone so mm, chapter nine mom i am a monster just northwest of Denver and southeast of Boulder lies the suburb of Westminster, Colorado. The city of about 100,000 people is nice, safe place to raise a family. At least that's what it, oh, what the residents thought before May 2012. On Memorial Day holiday, 22-year-old woman was jogging around beautiful Kentner Lake, a fancy acre open space with one mile trail that encircles the lake and as she ran along the secluded trail in the early afternoon a man ran up to her from behind and grabbed her arms and forced a cloth over her mouth probably chloroform and she could smell the distinct odors of chemicals on the cloth again chloroform again if you guys don't know what chloroform is i'm not going to mansplain it this is not a way of explaining it because I don't know why you people say it's mansplaining like stop mansplaining it to me it's not mansplaining it it's called explaining it correction mansplaining it it's totally not the case when someone's explaining something to you that you don't know and it's not because that we don't know that you don't know it's because she can be well informed chloroform is what they use to basically make you unconscious and it's a chemical based thing that they put onto a piece of cloth like a like a microfiber towel and they put it on you so you can breathe in and you can fall asleep and be a little loopy 
And sometimes they would do that to rape you, to make you unconscious and hug tie you, or just kidnap you. The young woman was lucky. Though she was terrified, she was strong enough to fight the man and got away to call police. She described the attacker as a white male, approximately 5 feet 8 inches tall, with brown hair, average build, wearing a blue baseball cap, black t-shirt, jeans, and sunglasses. Westminster police developed this sketch of the attacker and obtained some DNA from the police. Just months went by and they weren't able to find any suspects. Police had no idea the attacker was 17-year-old Austin Sick. Austin was just 12 years old. His stepmother sent him to a faith-based therapist after finding a porn, like finding porn on his computer. He wrote a note to his therapist saying, quote, I have an addiction to porn and I would like to stop, end quote. This wasn't just any kind of porn though. Austin was addicted to child pornography. Austin went through therapy and his therapist encouraged his father to add additional parenting controls to his computer. But as any teenager now like nowadays he can easily circumvent it. Like he can easily go around it. He can easily kind of like slither away around it and try to find different ways to not have parental controls on his computer. From here, his addiction only escalated. Austin later recalled saying, quote, It took a lot, like, it took a lot of hold of me, and it just started growing and festering. And after I got done seeing my Christian therapist, psychiatrist, and whatever you want to call it, I thought I had a grip for a little while, and then it probably lasted not even a month, and then I went back to it. And what he meant was going back to watching child pornography. End quote. To his friends and fellow students, he seemed like a relatively normal kid. Like, I'm not saying this as in general, I'm just saying this because, like, when you see a normal average kid in school, they're not normal. They're not. I'm, I'm sorry. They're fucking not. Um, friends said that he was a bit of a goth kid, and but well-liked, smart, and a total sweetheart. He had a collection of swords and knives, but came across as a regular kid into music and special video games. His classmates, however, had no idea about the crazy thoughts that were swirling in his head. Austin left high school early to attend Warren Tech, a local technical school, and got his GED high school equivalency. Again, I always wanted to take my GED, like when I was struggling in high school, when I was like in freshman year. I was like telling my parents, I was like, I want to get a GED, and they're like, why? Because, like, I am, I'm not saying I'm struggling in high school, it's just because, like, I want to get high school done and over with, and I don't want to deal with people. I'm like, I'm like my mom, because my mom is, like, such, like, like, a person that doesn't like to deal with people, and, like, being around people, like, if you go to the Queen's Center Mall, it's festered with people, and, like, and I mean festered, I mean, like, uh, there is a lot of people the Queen Center Mall, no joke, and, and like in Queens, New York, it's like a lot, and it's like so much. Like, why don't they go to Roosevelt Field Mall? Like, hello, that one is not a lot of people. It's like less people, like very less. <coughs> and um, but he came across as a regular kid that was into music and video games. His classmates, however, had no idea about the crazy thoughts that were swirling in his head. Austin left high school, like again, left high school, 
to attend Warren Tech, a local technical school, which means I had a GED equivalency. Which again, a GED is basically the easy way out of taking like a kind of placement test of like where you stand in mathematics, science, social studies, English, like all those. So that way you can be able to pass the to get a GED and then basically it's like a high school diploma. So you won't have to participate in any high school activities or festivities or anything like that and you can just get a job. <coughs> He then enrolled at an era Fahone Community College. He wanted to put high school behind him and pursue his obsession, monetary science and crime scene investigation. Again, this is giving me so much Brian Coburn because he was doing that before he what he was doing before like he was grading papers at the university. He went to policing in crime scene investigation a little bit and it, it's crazy because like I guess he kind of knew a little bit his way around of, of a crime scene a little bit besides leaving the sheath of the knife at the scene of the crime but other than that he had no other fingerprints that were at the scene besides leaving the fingerprints on on the sheath of the, of the knife and, and having the same description of the car outside of the house of the Idaho murders besides that like he was spot on with what he had done with these four poor adults but anyway um, in addition to his porn addiction Austin had an obsession with dead bodies and decomposition I'm not gonna explain dead bodies because everyone knows what a dead body is but decomposition is basically how fast anything like a dead body a dead animal can deteriorate in a matter of time and days he took dead rats home from school so he could study them in various stages of decomposition just like if you take like a clinical study of how much grease food has like you take a potato chip like a lace potato chip and you place it on a napkin and you take a chicken and you put it on a napkin and you take a pizza like a slice of pizza like a like a small cuttery size slice of pizza and then you put it on pieces of paper and then you see how fast and, and like how many days it takes for that to sit and saturate and on the paper and how much grease it has and then you measure it and circumference and everything like that kind of experiment to me and that's like stages so it's like stage one stage two stage three Austin's father was a wealthy businessman owner, but had a long criminal record. Robert Singh had a federal conviction for bank fraud and various other charges, including assault, burglary, domestic violence, and distributing drugs and a DUI, driving under the influence, and resisting arrest. By the time Austin reached 17, his child porn obsession had progressed to seclude violence and death. On his phone, Austin kept photos and videos of children, bondage, rape, and human dismemberance, like dismemberment. On August 5th, 2012, five months after Ketna Leakjogger was attacked, 10-year-old Jessica Ridgway started her walk to school just like any other day. Jessica was excited to become a teenager only three more years, and she loved to play waitress and cheerleader. She loved math, and her favorite color was purple. 
She was known for her purple glasses and tiny gap in her front teeth. Jessica's mother worked the night shift from 10 p.m. till 7 a.m., so she was able to see Jessica off to school in the morning before she slept during the day. Normally, Jessica walked to school with a young boy down the street and called the boy's father at 8.25 a.m. to let them know she was on her way. Jessica kissed her mother goodbye and put on a black puffy coat and at 8.30 a.m. headed out the door. Though the boy only lived a few houses away, Jessica never arrived there. The boy's father assumed Jessica's mother had decided to leave her, decided to drive her to school. When Witt Elementary School realized Jessica had not shown up for school, they called her mother Sarah. But because of her work schedule, she she was still asleep and, and the call went to voicemail. When Sarah Ridgway woke up at 4 p.m., she heard the voicemail and she immediately went looking for Jessica along the route to school. She checked her friend's home, the nearby park, and there was no signs of Jessica. Ridgway, like Sarah Ridgway, said to the media, quote, And then you get a pit in your stomach. You don't want any parent to experience in their entire life. And when you know your child has been taken, end quote. When Jessica's terrified mother reported her missing at 4.30 p.m., and the search started immediately. Police questioned school faculty and went door-to-door along her route to school, hoping for any leads. Volunteers and firefighters joined in the search, and an Amber Alert was issued at 9.15 p.m. Again, this is 2012, and the Amber like, Alert started like in the late 90s. And by morning, there was a cover of... A and like there was like um like by morning there was over a thousand people searching for Jessica, searching in one of the largest searches in Colorado history. Police sent divers into Kettner Lake, while sniffer dogs and helicopters searched the area, but there was no trace of Jessica. Despite their efforts, the first forty-eight hours came and went with no cru- clues. If you ever heard of the term from police, or like saying that the first 48 hours are crucial that is true when it comes down to children when it comes down to children as less than 17 and and less like 17 and less older than that it is crucial on sunday october 7 six miles away a man found a backpack in his yard not having heard the news from the missing, like of the missing girl, he posted on a local social media page about it and mentioned that it contained a keychain with the name Jessica Ridgeway. Others in the group informed him there was the name of the missing girl, and he turned the backpack over to police. Inside the backpack, investigators found Jessica's purple glasses and the clothes she was wearing when she left for school that morning, and her clothes were soaked in urine. DNA analysis of the backpack revealed the DNA of someone other than Jessica. More likely, it was the DNA of her abductor. When the DNA was put through databases, it revealed that it was a match to the DNA from the person who attacked the jogger on Kentner Lake. Five days after Jessica had gone missing, maintenance workers were working in the Partridge Park open space when they noticed something that seemed strange and out of place. In a patch of of tall whiskey grass was a large black garbage bag. When workers opened the bag, they found a tiny human torso. 
Partridge Park was nine miles southwest of George of Lake Jessica's home in the town of Ar Arveda. Arveda police and Westminster police worked together with the FBI under floodlights throughout the night processing the scene. The torso was missing the arms, legs, and head and had been wiped clean, but not clean enough. Police were able to retrieve DNA from the torso. It matched the backpack and the Kettner Link jogger. The next morning, investigators announced the devastating news. The torso was indeed the remains of the 10-year-old Jessica Ridgway. The sense of anguish and terror gripped the community of Westminster and surrounding cities. Parents took time off work to make sure their children made it to school safe. The city was once left doors unlocked, and the kids played free had instantly lost its sense of security. Jessica Ridgway's funeral was held October 16, 2012. Her favorite purple, like her favorite color purple, was pre predominant. Over 2,000 people attended, and her mother wore a purple ribbon in her hair. Mourners released purple balloons, and Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper wore a purple shirt as he spoke and expressed the sadness of the entire state of Colorado. In the days after Jessica's death, over 700 local residents gave voluntary DNA samples. One of the samples was the 17-year-old Austin Sig. He had been studying, like studying crimes and investigations, and was confident that he had left no trace. But he voluntarily allowed investigators to swab his cheek. Incredibly, Austin's DNA sample was mishandled, and his DNA was mistakenly returned to police in a batch of samples that were not a match. Three days after the funeral on October 19th, Westminster police asked the public for help. They had found a small cross. Near the torso in a partridge park, which was possibly part of a necklace. Police were asking for anyone who may have seen the cross before to come forward and they were in luck. A woman called detectives and reported a friend of hers, Mandy Sig, had a son who wore a cross similar to the one shown on the news and lived less than a mile from Jessica's home. When police interviewed Austin Singh, he was calm and answered all the questions they had asked him. He told police he was sleeping on the morning that Jessica disappeared. Though he was calm during the questioning, after the interview, he was on edge and told friends that on Osapro Community College that he felt sick and wobbly. Austin was concerned that the FBI had matched his DNA for, to the samples that, t that was taken from the torso and the backpack. On the 9th of October 22nd, 2012, Austin was panicking and so slept with his mother. The next day, Austin told his mother saying, quote, I am a monster and need to be punished. He explained what he had done and his mother called Westminster Police. The following excerpt was from Mandy Singh's 911 call, saying, quote, and this is going to be from Mandy Singh and the 911 operator. Mandy Singh said, um, quote, um, hi, um, I need you to come to my house. Um, my son wants to turn himself in for the Jessica Ridgway murder. 911, what's going on here? Ma'am, are you there? Mandy said, did you not hear me? He just confessed to killing her. 911, I know. I want you to tell me what's going on. Can you tell me exactly what he said? Mandy said that he did it and he and gave me details and her remains are in my house. 
The 911 dispatcher then asks to speak to Austin. Austin then says, I don't exactly get why you're asking me these questions. I murdered Jessica Ridgeway. 911, okay. Austin said, there, there is, I, I have proof that I did it. There is no other question. You just have to send a squad car. Something's, something down here. Austin said then admitted to attacking the jogger on Kettner Lake. He was then asked if he had any weapons. Austin said, I have knives in my room and um, we own a few guns, but I'm, I'm giving myself up completely. There will be no resistance whatsoever. The dispatcher speaks again to Mindy. 911 says, is Austin still there with you? Mindy said, yeah, I'm hugging him, crying. 911 says, okay, are you guys you guys are hugging okay you definitely did the right thing you can you tell me when the officers get there they're coming to your front door okay the investigators questioned austin singh for hours when he explained in the horrific detail how he abducted and murdered jessica ridgeway austin had been hiding in his back seat uh, on his jeep like he was sitting in the backseat of his jeep on the morning of October 5th, 2012, as Jessica was walking to school. Though he claimed Jessica was chosen as at random, he parked near her house and knew that she would have to walk past his vehicle as she walked down the street. As she passed his jeep, he leaped out of the backseat and grabbed her. Jessica screamed, but nobody heard her screams. Using zip ties, he bound her wrists and ankles and threw her in the backseat and then drove down random side streets by the time they arrived at his house. The frightened 10-year-old girl had wet herself with fear. Austin claimed that he sat with Jessica for two hours in his bedroom watching a movie and cartoons and she asked, asked him over and over if she knew his mom. He then cut her hair and gave her clothes to change to and he put her UNICEF clothes into her backpack. Initially, he claimed that he didn't sexually assault her, but later admitted that he did several times. She suffered considerable bruising from the force of rape, and after he had repeatedly raped her, Sig Austin told her to face the wall, and when she turned around, he put zip ties around her neck and attempted to strangle her. He told investigators that he didn't have enough leverage. With the zip ties they cut into his hands, he then um, tried strangling her with his bare hands, but then after three minutes, he realized his hands just weren't enough, like weren't strong enough. Eventually, he filled the bathtub with scathing, with scalding hot water, and forced her head underwater, drowning her. Austin went on to tell investigators he shoved a small cross into her vagina and dismembered her body using a small knife and a saw. He cut her arms, leg, and head off and placed in these full details of dismemberment. But Austin told police that the whole process fulfilled a sexual fantasy for him. He cut her hands, feet into small pieces and flushed them down the toilet. He then removed her internal organs and put them in containers and labeled them. He kept her skull and organs in a small crawl space in his home. Austin told police that afterwards, he sat looking at her body, same quote. 
All I can think was, oh God, what have I done? There's no better word to describe what I have done than evil. Un end quote. And after 17, only 17 years old at the time of the murder, Austin could not be charged as an adult and wasn't eligible for the death penalty or life in prison because of the Supreme Court determined those penalties are cruel and unusual punishment for minors. Instead, he was charged with, or um, charged in juvenile court. Prosecutors wanted to make certain he would never see the, uh, like, the outside of the prison. The court against, like, the counts against him piled up. He was charged with 19 counts, including first-degree murder, after deliberation, and three counts of felony murder, sexual assault on a child, second-degree kidnapping and robbery, plus attempted murder, attempted kidnapping, and attempted sexual assault for the Kettner Lake jogger attack. Austin pleaded guilty to all counts against him. His defense argued that he was not mature and didn't understand the acts he was committing, but the judge disagreed. On November 20th, 2013, Austin Sig was sentenced to 40 years in prison for first-degree murder plus additional 86 years for remaining 18 counts against him, ensuring he'll never be released from prison. And in October 5th, 2013, one year after her death, the city of Westminster, Colorado changed the name of Jessica's favorite park to the Jessica Ridgeway Memorial Park. Throughout the park, the sidewalks are etched with Jessica's favorite knock-knock jokes and the children's playground toys are painted her favorite color, purple. I think, to be honest with you guys, I think given the facts here, if anyone besides Austin Sig have committed these 19 counts, like, all of these counts I mentioned, like, the, the first degree murder after deliberation, three counts of felony, murder, sexual assault on a child, second degree kidnapping, robbery, like, all this, like, if they had all this on their rap sheet, like, as they were being put in to court and stuff, like, all these charges, I think it's safe to say that giving the fact that he was given 40 years plus 86, so that'll be 1,200 or something. Like, not 1,200, sorry, lied. Um, a hun like 100 and something. 40 plus 80 is what exactly? I have no idea. But I know, because I know it's 12, so that's basically 126 years, and he'll be dead by almost like 104. But like, come on. I know it's because of the counts of murder and the counts, the 19 counts that he had, but like, why can't they pull this on every single criminal that does sexual assault on young children and on adults too, like prostitutes, like why can't they do that? Like for the Chemical Beach one, why can't, why can't they just charge him with all, all that and, you know, discharge him and then put like the jury decide 86 years or the judge decides 86 years for the count the body count because it's like maybe six or seven body counts six or seven or eight body counts of people that he murdered including an asian and a baby like come on why can't they just give him 126 years 
just like Austin. Like, come on, it's more ethical and more logical to give him 126 years. He will never see a lot of game. He will probably die in prison. That's all I'm saying. But that's like the end of that one. So the next episode I'm gonna do on um, three three stories in one. It's gonna be chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. So chapter 10 is called A Grizzly New Orleans Tale, and chapter 11 is called The Alligator Theory, and chapter 12 is The Kibisho Monster. So that is it from today's two chapters. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I loved talking about it and reading it to y'all. So, I know I just said y'all, I should be stopped, I should be stopped, but I'm not going to because I love saying y'all, like y'all better enjoy this, I sound like Sandy Cheeks some, sometimes I, but anyway, yeah, I'll speak to you guys soon about the next two, next three chapters, bye!